This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Benedict. The Middle Temple Murder by J.S. Fletcher. Chapter 32. The Contents of the Coffin. They traveled down together to Market Milcaster late that afternoon. Spargo, Breton, the officials from the Home Office entrusted with the order for the opening of the Chamberlain grave, and a solicitor acting on the behalf of the proprietor of the watchman. It was late in the evening when they reached the little town, but Spargo, having looked in at the parlor of the Yellow Dragon, had ascertained that Mr. Quarterpage had only just gone home, took Breton across the street to the old gentleman's house. Mr. Quarterpage himself came to the door and recognized Spargo immediately. Nothing would satisfy him but that the two should go in. His family, he said, had just retired, but he himself was going to take a final nightcap and a cigar, and they must share it. For a few minutes, only then, Mr. Quarterpage said Spargo, as they followed the old man into his dining room, we have to be up at daybreak, and possibly you too would like to be up just as early. Mr. Quarterpage looked an inquiry over the top of a decanter which he was handling. At daybreak, he exclaimed. The fact is, said Spargo, that the grave of Chamberlain's is going to be opened at daybreak. We have managed to get an order from the Home Secretary for the exhumation of Chamberlain's body. The officials in charge of it have come down in the same train with us. We're all staying across there at the Dragon. The officials have gone to make the proper arrangements with your authorities. It will be at daybreak, or as near as can conveniently be managed. And, I suppose, now that you know this, you will be there. God bless me, exclaimed Mr. Quarterpage. You've really done that. Well, well. So we shall know the truth at last, after all these years. You're a wonderful young man, Mr. Spargo, upon my word. And this other young gentleman? Spargo looked at Breton, who had already given him permission to speak. Mr. Quarterpage, he said, this young gentleman is, without doubt, John Maitland's son. He's the young barrister, Mr. Ronald Breton, that I had told you of. But there is no doubt of his parentage, and I'm sure you'll shake hands with him and wish him well. Mr. Quarterpage sat down the decanter and glass, and hastened to give Breton his hand. My dear young sir, he exclaimed, that I will indeed, and as to wishing you well, ah, I never wished anything but well to your poor father. He was led away, sir, led away by Chamberlain. God bless me, what a night of surprises! Why, Mr. Spargo, supposing that coffin is found empty, what then? Then, answered Spargo, then I think we shall be able to put our hands on the man who is supposed to be in it. "'You think my father was worked upon by this man Chamberlain, sir?' observed Breton a few minutes later when they had all sat down round Mr. Quarterpage's hospitable hearth. "'You think he was unduly influenced by him?' Mr. Quarterpage shook his head sadly. "'Chamberlain, my dear young sir,' he answered. "'Chamberlain was a plausible and clever fellow. Nobody knew anything about him until he came to this town, and yet before he had been here very long he had contrived to ingratiate himself with everybody, of course to his own advantage.' I firmly believe that he twisted your father round his little finger. As I told Mr. Spargo there when he was making his inquiries of me a short while back, it would never have been any surprise to me to hear definitely, I mean young gentleman, that all this money that was in question went into Chamberlain's pockets. Dear me, dear me, and you really believe that Chamberlain is actually alive, Mr. Spargo? Spargo pulled out his watch. We shall all know whether he was buried in that grave before another six hours are over, Mr. Quarterpage, he said. He might well have spoken of four hours instead of six, for it was then nearly midnight, and before three o'clock Spargo Breton, with the other men who had accompanied them from London, were out of the Yellow Dragon and on their way to the cemetery just outside the little town. 
Over the hills, the eastward gray dawn was slowly breaking. The long stretch of marshland which lies between Market Millcaster and the sea was white with fog. On the cypress of the cemetery hung veils of webs of gossamer. Everything around them was quiet as the dead folk who lay beneath their feet, and the people actively concerned went quietly to work, and those who could do nothing but watch stood around in silence. In all my long life, over ninety years, in all my long life, over ninety years, whispered old Quarterpage, who had met them at the cemetery gates looking fresh and brisk in spite of a shortened rest, I have never seen this done before. It seems a strange, strange thing to interfere with a dead man's last resting place. A dreadful thing. If there is a dead man there, said Spargo. He himself was mainly curious about the details of this exhumation. He had no scruples, sentimental or otherwise, about breaking in upon this the dead he watched all that was done the men employed by the local authorities instructed overnight had fenced in the grave with canvas the proceedings were accordingly conducted in strict privacy a man was posted to keep away any very early passerbys who might be attracted to the unusual proceedings at first there was nothing to do but wait and spargo occupied himself by reflecting that every spadeful of earth thrown out of that grave was bringing him nearer to the truth he had an unconquerable intuition that the truth of, at any rate, one phase of the Marbury case was going to be revealed to them. If the coffin to which they were digging down contained a body, and that the body of a stockholder, Chamberlain, then a good deal of his, Spargo's latest theory, would be dissolved to nothingness. But if that coffin contained no body at all, then... They're down to it, whispered Breton. Presently, they all went and looked down into the grave. The workmen had uncovered the coffin preparatory to lifting it up to the surface. One of them was brushing the earth away from the nameplate, and in now strong light they could all read the lettering on it. James Cartwright Chamberlain, born 1852, died 1891. Spargo turned away as the men began to lift the coffin out of the grave. We shall know now, he whispered to Breton. And yet, what is it we shall know if? If what, said Breton? If what? But Spargo shook his head. This was one of the greatest moments he had lately been working for, and the issues were tremendous. Now for it, said the watchman solicitor in an undertone. Come, Mr. Spargo, we shall now see. They all gathered round the coffin set on low trestles at the gravesite as workmen silently went to work on the screws. The screws were rusted in their sockets, and they grated as the men slowly worked them out. It seemed to Spargo that each man grew slower and slower in his movements. He felt that he himself was getting fidgety. Then he heard a voice of authority. Lift the lid off! A man at the head of the coffin, a man at the foot, suddenly and swiftly raised the lid. The men gathered round, craned their necks with a quick movement. Sawdust! The coffin was packed to the brim with sawdust, tightly pressed down. The surface lay smooth, undisturbed, leveled as some hand had leveled it long years before. They were not in the presence of death, but of deceit. Someone laughed faintly. The sound of the laughter broke the spell. The chief official present looked round him with a smile. It is evident that there were good grounds for suspicion, he remarked. Here is no dead body, gentlemen. See if anything lies beneath the sawdust, he added, turning to the workman. Turn it out. The workmen began to scoop out the sawdust with their hands. One of them, evidently desirous of making sure that nobody was in the coffin, thrust down his fingers at various places along its length. He too laughed. The coffin's weighted with lead, he remarked. See! And tearing the sawdust aside, he showed those around him that at three intervals, bars of lead had been tightly wedged into the coffin where the head, middle, and feet of a corpse would have rested. Done it cleverly, he remarked, looking round. You see how these weights have been adjusted? 
when a body's laid out in a coffin, you know, all the weight's in the end where the head and trunk rests. Here, you see, the heaviest bar of lead is in the middle, the lightest at the feet. Clever. Clear out all the sawdust, said someone. Let's see if there's anything else. There was something else. At the bottom of the coffin, two bundles of papers tied with pink tape. The legal gentleman present immediately manifested great interest in these. So did Spargo, who, pulling Breton along with him, forced his way to where the officials from the home office and the solicitor sent by the watchman were hastily examining their discoveries. The first bundle of papers opened, evidently related to transactions at Market Milcaster. Spargo caught glimpses of names that were familiar to him. Mr. Quarterpage is amongst them. He was not at all astonished to see these things, but he was something more astonished when, on the second parcel being opened, a quantity of papers relating to Cloud Hampton and the Hearth and Home Mutual Benefit Society were revealed. He gave a hasty glance at these and drew Breton aside. It strikes me we found a good deal more than we ever bargained for, he exclaimed. Didn't Aylmore say that the real culprit at Cloudhampton was another man, his clerk or something of that sort? He did, agreed Breton. He insists on it. Then this fellow Chamberlain must have been the man, said Spargo. He came to market Milcaster from the north. What will be done with those papers, he asked, turning to the officials. We are going to seal them up at once and take them to London, replied the principal person in authority. They will be quite safe, Mr. Spargo. Have no fear. We don't know it, what they may reveal. You don't indeed, said Spargo, but I may as well tell you that I have a strong belief that they will reveal a good deal that nobody dreams of, so take the greatest care of them. Then, without waiting for further talk with anyone, Spargo hurried Breton out of the cemetery. At the gate, he seized him by the arm. Now then, Breton, out with it. With what? You promised to tell me something. A great deal, you said, if we found that coffin empty. It is empty. Come on, quick. All right, I believe I know where Elphick and Carlstone can be found. That's all. All? It's enough. Where then, in heaven's name? Elphick has a queer little place where he and Cardlestone sometimes go fishing, right away up in one of the wildest parts of the Yorkshire Moors. I expect they've gone there. Nobody knows even their names there. They could go and lie quiet there for ages. Do you know the way to it? I do. I've been there. Spargo motioned him to hurry. Come on then, he said. We're going there by the very first train out of this. I know the train, too. We've just time to snatch a mouthful of breakfast and send a wire to the watchman, and then we'll be off. Yorkshire! Gad, Breton, that's over 300 miles away! End of chapter 32